Please turn with me in your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 8. As we continue in our sermon series, the book of Nehemiah really is divided into two parts. In the first part, we looked at rebuilding the wall, which was a very important work. But now that that is finished, we're going to start to look at what is actually the more important work, which is the rebuilding of the people of God inside of the wall. All of the events, really, that we've seen previously in this series have been leading up until this point. It's really not about the rebuilt city. It's not about the rebuilt temple. It's not about the rebuilt walls. All of those things have been rebuilt so that the people of God can have a safe place to gather inside of it in order to gather to worship the one true God. And so after the wall is completed, everyone can breathe out a sigh of relief and focus their attention on God. So before we look at the text, let's kind of take a moment to talk about breathing. Uh, most of us misunderstand breathing. We tend to see breathing as passive, something we just do. Uh, you breathe, you live. You don't breathe, you die. Uh, but it's not quite as binary or simple as that, really. How we breathe matters. And so uh, let's just take a deep breath in together, can we? Let's just breathe in and breathe out. Now, inside that breath that you just took, there are more molecules of air than there are grains of sand on all of the world's beaches. We each inhale and exhale some 30 pounds of these molecules every single day, far more than we eat, far more than we drink. The way we take in that air and expel it is as important as, as what we eat, as how much we exercise, and even the genes that we have inherited. Uh, neurologists and pulmonologists at Stanford, Harvard, and other institutions have found that breathing habits were directly related to physical and mental health. Breathing properly can allow us to live longer and healthier lives. And breathing poorly, by contrast, can exacerbate and sometimes cause a laundry list of chronic diseases such as asthma, anxiety, hypertension, and more. Breathing properly is essential. And friends, just like breath, there is something your soul needs. There is something that your spirit needs. There is something that your heart needs. There is something that your inner man needs to take in on a regular basis, and that is the very word of God. Uh, the scripture tells us that God has breathed his word in the holy scriptures, and Christianity makes an astounding claim. Uh, the claim is this, that God can be found by reading the pages of a book called the Bible. I have never gotten over that, and I hope you never get over it either. A few years ago, there was a song that talked about, this is the air I breathe, your very word spoken to me. The word of God brings life, it brings vibrancy to our souls. But sadly, many people go through their lives without it. They do not properly oxygenate with the Bible. A Pew Research study was published that had some disturbing trends. One of the questions that was posed to evangelicals was as follows. How many times do you read scripture outside the religious services that you attend Evangelicals responded that only 60% of us ever read scripture outside of the religious services that we attend. That's pretty amazing. That means 40% of us 
uh, don't touch our Bible unless we're here at church. Now, we wouldn't try to go through our week holding our breath all week, right? I mean, let's just do this. Let's everybody just hold our breath for just a moment. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to invite you to see how this feels, okay? Uh, everybody, let's just take a deep breath and hold it. Ready? One, two, three. Hold it. All right, you're starting to feel a little desperate, right? You can let, you can let it out. Okay, I could have kept going there, but I think you get the idea. Your body just knows that it needs air. And just like that, your spiritual being, your soul, desperately needs the word of God. This is the way you're made to receive and to breathe in the very words of God. Jesus said in John 6, my words are spirit and they are life. And so that's what this section of Nehemiah is all about. I just simply entitled this message, A People of the Book, based in Nehemiah chapter 8, verses 1 through 12, where we'll focus. And I want to share with you five ways that we need to learn to respond to God's word that are found right here in the text. It not only shows us why we need God's word, but it shows us also how we can listen well to God's word and receive all the nourishment that's available for us inside. And so that's where we're going to head today, and why don't we pray just to ask for the Lord's help. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. It is a lamp to our feet, a light to our path. As the seed of the word is planted, we trust that you will provide the increase. Uh, Lord, we just pause for a moment to thank you for the Bannon's faithfulness, Lord, to your word. Help us in our time uh, to be faithful to what your word is calling us to do. Uh, for we ask that for Christ's sake and for his reputation. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. If you pick it up in chapter 7, uh, we're going to dive into the main text in just a moment, but chapter 7, verse 1, has something that I think is important for us to recognize as well. Uh, the text begins like this. It says, after the wall had been rebuilt, Nehemiah speaking here, and I had set the doors in place, the gatekeepers, the musicians, and the Levites were appointed, I put in charge of Jerusalem my brother Hanani, along with Hananiah, the commander of the citadel, because he was a man of integrity and feared God more than most people do. So after this wall is completed, 52 days, it's done. The first order of business for Nehemiah is to set the leaders in place. Now the reason he chose, you might remember Hanani was his brother from Nehemiah chapter 1 that brought him the news of the broken down walls uh, when Nehemiah was over there in the citadel of Susa. Here's Hananiah again here. And the reason why he's given this position of leadership is not because he's his brother or there's nepotism, nothing like that. The reason why uh, is the same reason that we as a church would put somebody in a position of leadership. It's because he was a person of integrity and because he feared God more than most people do. You and I need this today. We need leaders in our lives who will speak to us and who will encourage us, leaders who are seeking the Lord, leaders who fear God more than most people do. Now, for the sake of time, I want you to see as the leaders are set in place, Nehemiah is just going to list all of the uh, people who return back from captivity in the rest of chapter 7. Uh, you can read that on your own. It's interesting for me, like Bible nerds find this to be kind of interesting. But for a sermon, I'm just going to skip 72 verses right now and drop down to the end of chapter 7 as the story, the narrative picks up there. Look at 73. It says, when the seventh month came and the Israelites had settled in their towns, all the people came together as one in the square before the water gate. Not the hotel in Washington, D.C., different water gate. They told Ezra 
Ezra, the teacher of the law, to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. So on the first day of the seventh month, Ezra, the priest, brought the law before the assembly, which was made up of men and women and all who were able to understand. So pause for a second. Notice a few things. First, notice the timing. It says it was the first day of the seventh month. That's the Hebrew month of Tishri. This would have corresponded to what's the beginning of the three fall feasts of Israel. So first they would celebrate the Feast of Trumpets, Rosh Hashanah, the New Year. Uh, and then they would celebrate on the 10th of the same month, the, the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. And then on the 15th of that month, they would celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles or Sukkot. And so these were celebrations that the people would gather for and remember and recall and celebrate all that God had done for his people. Secondly, I want you to notice uh, that Ezra shows back up. Uh, you'll recall him from previous chapters and previous sermons in our series. Ezra was a contemporary of Nehemiah. He's still around. He's a scribe. Ezra is a highly respected scholar in both Judaism and Christianity. And for this reason, Ezra is an expert in the Word of God. And so he's going to do the teaching. Third, I want you to notice the term, the people. Uh, the people, or later you'll see the assembly, or men and women who could understand. The people, uh, the phrase the people is mentioned in these 12 verses 13 different times. It is the people that absolutely dominate this section of the book of Nehemiah. I emphasize that because it is not about the preacher, it's not about the teacher, it's not about the leaders, it's not about Ezra, and it's not about Nehemiah. It is about the people that are gathered together uh, to listen and obey uh, the word of God. Now, Ezra begins this whole celebration by bringing out the book, uh, and it's called here the Book of the Law. This was their Bible, and this book is going to play an absolutely central role in this gathering. Why? The reason is because they believed, and we believe, that this book was actually inspired by God, and God's people need God's Word. Remember back then, not everybody had a copy of the Scriptures like you and I do, not everybody had an iPhone with a version Bible app that you could just have whenever you wanted it. And secondly, remember the Jewish people had been out of this land for generations. They were hundreds of miles away. And it may be the case that many of them had never heard the word of God in their whole lives up until now. And so they're gathering, many of them, perhaps for the first time ever, to listen to God's word. And so this is a special occasion because God's people need God's word and God's people need God's word today too. But the sad reality, friends, is that that's not always happening in some churches. And you know, sometimes you can, you can see, you can go to a church and it's not always popular to even preach the word of God. In this, this church, you might go to this building and you, you might be just as likely to hear Shakespeare or T.S. Eliot or, or Emily Dickinson talked about in, in their worship service and, 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 and the problem with all of that is that, that, that God has not promised to bless the words of Shakespeare and Emily Dickinson or T.S. Eliot. He has said, my word will not return void. So after hearing that stuff in some of, those, some of those communities, you leave, and it might feel good for a little while, but you leave empty and you leave malnourished. It kind of reminds me of this picture that I saw. Here's somebody coming out of one of those kinds of churches which actually doesn't believe in the inspiration of the scriptures. And if you've ever been to one of those gatherings, you know the feeling. The verse at the bottom of the graphic is from Amos 8.11 where the prophet says this, the 
Days are coming, declares the sovereign Lord, when I will send a famine through the land, not a famine of food or a thirst for water, but a famine of hearing the words of the Lord. What Amos was talking about was a judgment that was brought about by God. And God basically said, you don't want to listen to me? Okay, here's my punishment for you. I'm going to stop talking to you. Okay, you don't want to hear from me? Fine, you're not going to hear from me. God's word is so important for us to listen and focus on. There's no substitute. If we don't do that, we're lost. We're dead in the water. It's like not eating. It's like not breathing. We're not going to make it. Listen, you and I don't need to hear from a preacher every week. You and I need to hear from God himself every week, and we find out what he has to say to us in this book right here. The air we breathe, the the nourishment my soul hungers for is here. Jesus said, you don't live by bread alone. You live by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Look at 1 Peter 2, 2. Peter says this, as newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby. You know, when our daughters were small and little and still drinking out of a bottle, they would get fussy and they would get cranky and they would begin to communicate with her, their, their mother and I that they were, they were hungry. And so when they were crying, I would go over to the kitchen and grab one of those bottles and, and mix up the formula with the water. And it was funny, as soon as they heard that sound, that mixing of the formula with the water, all of a sudden, the baby started to calm down. All of a sudden, the baby stopped crying. And as soon as I brought it over, the baby would grab that bottle. And just like nothing else mattered in that moment. But just to get that bottle down them, they had this intense, passionate, overwhelming, insatiable craving. What this scripture is saying is that that's the kind of appetite we need to have for the word of God. God's people need God's word. But sadly, there's lots of preachers out there that will avoid parts of the Bible because they're offensive in our current cultural moment. Many people think that Christianity and our whole belief system is so outdated, there's no place for what we think in this modern world, that what we believe is an anomaly. It's from a bygone age, especially our convictions around marriage and sexuality. Their thought is that these ideas are just a blip on the radar of history that will soon be a thing of the past. But Dr. Michael, Matthew Roberts, a Reformed pastor and author, says, no, it's actually just the opposite. It's not the Christian worldview that's the anomaly. It's the wisdom of this age that's the anomaly. This is the thing that will soon be a thing of the past. There will come a time when people think what is so obvious and certain and the only right way to think will have gone the same way of some outdated technology. Let me just give you an illustration. Can anybody under the age of 30 tell me what this thing is on the screen right here? (laughs) This is an ancient medieval device called a VCR, a video cassette recorder. You would play on this device these things called VHS tapes. So this morning in my house, I'm like rummaging around like, do I have any of these things? And I sure enough, I found Michael Jordan, Come Fly With Me, 1991, (laughs) VHS tape. So somehow this was buried in the recesses of my clutter, and, and I don't even know if we have a way to play this thing anymore, but it's a remnant of a previous era where this technology was super popular. Now, how many of you still 
watch VHS tapes in your home? Be, just be honest. Is anybody? Okay, there's, there's a couple. There's a couple. I hope you're enjoying these things on a regular, regular basis. All right? That's, may, may the Lord bless you with that. Those of you Z, you have like no idea what I'm talking about right now. Now here's the question. How many of us today are understanding that this is like a regular part of our lives and we're enjoying this like every single day? Probably the majority of us would say no. No, we're not using that anymore. But there was a time, I bet there was a time where you can remember this was so normal, this was so popular. If I would have asked that question, every single hand would have gone up in this room. But now, a very short time later, this technology is totally obsolete. Here's the point I'm making, friends. Just like that, there will come a day when what seems so obvious in today's culture will be as obsolete as VHS technology. That is what the wisdom of this age is like. It is passing. It is ephemeral. It will not last. It will not be here in the ages to come. Our generation's ideals, our generation's values, our culture belief system is just one tiny blip on the radar of human history. We are the anomaly. And one day that will become very obvious. But you know what will stand forever? You know what will stand timeless? You know what will never change? The word of God. This is why we open the book, because God's people need God's word. So this is what's going on back then. Back to our story, back to the text. Take a look at three and four. It says this, he, meaning Ezra, read it aloud from daybreak till noon as he faced the square before the water gate in the presence of the men, women, and others who could understand. And all the people listened attentively to the book of the law. Ezra, the teacher of the law, stood on a high platform built for the occasion. Now picture the scene with me in your mind's eye. Ezra stands up on this big stage. Thousands of people are gathered around. The leaders are up front, standing above so that all the people could have a good view. A finished wall is behind him so that there could be great acoustics for this occasion. And here it says that Ezra begins to read God's law. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. And Ezra continues to read from morning till noon. That's a six-hour service. Notice, it says, the people listened attentively. Their attention span is amazing. They didn't have the modern things we enjoy, like furnaces and boilers and air conditioning and padded seats and PowerPoint, no sound systems. You know what kept their attention? The Word of God. The Word of God. God's Word was powerful enough to keep their attention all by itself. But nowadays, for some people, it's like their, their attitude is like the shorter the sermon, Dave, the better. That's a sad commentary about how people feel about God's word. Back then, they were not drifting off. They were not sleeping. They're not getting bored. They're listening attentively to the word of God. 
back again when our kids were little, little babies, we had those baby monitors in their nursery. And so Julie and I would be listening during the evening in case there was any sound that would have happened. In the, I mean, back then, you could hear a pin drop with this baby monitor. So if there was anything that happened in the baby nursery, Julie or I would get up and go check on the baby to make sure everything was okay with the baby. What, what, what were we doing? We were listening attentively. That's the kind of listening that the people have here with the Word of God. And so that's the first point today in terms of how do we respond to the Word of God. We respond to the Word of God with careful listening. Can we say that together? Respond to the Word of God with careful listening. I heard a story about a guy who went to go see his pastor for some marriage counseling, and he said, my wife wants me to come see you. We're supposed to do some work on our marriage. And the pastor said, okay, just to be honest, uh, why do you think your wife wants you to come talk to, to me? Why do you guys think you need to, to start counseling? And the guy goes, well, I believe my wife told me that I don't listen to her. At least I think that's what she said. I'm really not totally sure. <laughs> we are not great at this skill of listening. It's a rare ability. Listening is hard work. Some of us are better listeners than others, but today I just want you to consider this question. How are your listening skills when you are listening to the Word of God on Sunday mornings? It reminds me of the guy who went to church on Sunday without his wife because she was sick, and so when he got home from church, after church, his wife said, well, how was the sermon? And he goes, well, it was good. And she goes, what was it about? And he goes, sin. And she goes, well, what did he say about it? And he goes, he's, he's against it. <laughs> I think we can do a little better with our listening. Throughout history, God has asked his people to listen to his voice. This is the Shema, right? Hear, O Israel, listen to me. Psalm chapter 95, today, if you hear my voice, do not harden your hearts. In the New Testament, Jesus says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. But sadly, for the most part, the history of Old Testament Israel, the history of God's people, is about their failure to listen to him. Psalm 81, 8 speaks to this, where God is lamenting, saying this, Oh, that my people would listen to me. Now, to this end, preachers carry a huge responsibility, but the listener carries a huge responsibility as well. It's a cooperative team effort on Sunday mornings. For the listener, it's not a totally passive role that God has for you to play. It's kind of like the relationship between a pitcher and a catcher in baseball. Both of these two spots have to learn to work together. And so a lot of times, uh, we leave church and we think, well, you know, I don't know. Pastor Dave's sermon, I didn't, I didn't really get much out of that sermon today. And we come to church and we treat it like a movie that we get to be like a movie critic. That's not the right way to come to church. That's not the right attitude. You know, I found that very few people have actually ever been taught how to play catcher. In other words, very few people have ever been taught, like, how do you listen to a sermon? Which makes no sense to me, because there's a lot more listeners in the world than there are preachers in the world, and there's a ton of resources out there about how to become a better preacher. There's very few resources about how to become a better listener. So on Sunday mornings, as we open the Bible, this is a special time for us to listen to what God has to say to us, and we need to listen carefully. Puritan pastor Richard Baxter said it really well. He said, come not to hear with a careless heart, as if you were to hear a matter that little concerned you, 
but come with a sense of the unspeakable weight, necessity, and consequences of the holy word which you are to hear. And when you understand how much you're concerned in it and truly love it as the word of life, it will greatly help your understanding of every particular truth. So here's what Baxter, Baxter is saying. To the degree that a sermon is reflecting uh, the meaning of God's word, during that sermon, God is speaking to you. During a sermon, God is speaking to us? If we believe this book is true and we believe this book is from God, it changes everything about how we listen. So, are you a careful listener? That's the first question. There's a book I found called Expository Listening, which I would highly recommend if you want to go deeper into this. Um, I did read it, and I sort of summarized the main points of it, and I put it as an appendix to your sermon outline today. Some of the things that the book mentions, uh, I bet you can guess. Like before Sunday morning, prayerfully read the passage that's been assigned in advance so that your heart knows what to expect. Or pray for the preacher that coming Sunday. I know I need that. And then when the sermon is, is given, you bring your Bible and you open your Bible and you, you make eye contact and you listen attentively and you nod your head and, and maybe you get one of those. I was talking to Tony Iana Cohen last week and he brought this, this leather-bound journal with him to church. And I said, what, what is that? He said, that's my, that's my sermon journal where I, I take my notes on the sermon inside of this journal. And I said, wow, that, that's really great. Not because I want him to write down what I say. I'm not interested in that. Who cares what I have to say? so that he can write down what God says to him in his word. That's the point of it. And then he can go back and review what the Lord has taught him. So the point is, we need to come prepared to hear God's word. Take a look at that appendix for more tips on how to listen, listen well. It will help us to be prepared. So the people are listening attentively. So let's go back to the text. It says this in verse 5. It says, so Ezra opened the book. All the people could see him because he was standing above them. And, and as he opened it, the people all stood up. Ezra praised the Lord, the great God, and all the people lifted their hands and responded, Amen, Amen. And then they bowed down and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Just pause there for a second and just notice their reaction. First, notice the people stood to their feet as a gesture of respect. You know, if I'm officiating at a wedding and I stand at the front of the sanctuary and it's that moment when the bride's going to start walking in with her dad, I don't have to instruct the congregation to stand to their feet. They just know it's time for us to stand out of respect uh, for this young woman. I, I remember I was talking with Darren Hernandez who said when, when we're at a board meeting and a, and a special guest comes into the board meeting especially if it's a female guest, all of the elders should stand up out of respect for that guest being present at the board meeting. This, this is what they're doing. They're honoring God's word like it's a guest that they're welcoming into their hearts. And this practice of standing while God's word is being read is still common today in many cultures around the world. Many churches stand during the word of God and it's reading to honor it, to, to respect what's being read. There's a sense of reverence here. And so that's the next point that we need to consider as we respond to God's word. We need to respond to the word of God with, with reverence. Can we say that? Respond to the word of God with reverence. Can I just mention that we're not a very reverent culture anymore? I think it's kind of sad. We need to be more reverent for God and for his word and a lot less concerned about all the other silly stuff we get concerned about. Notice in the text, it says, 
Secondly, they not only stood up, but they lifted up their hands. I could just hear some people in some churches saying, oh, no, 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 we don't do that. We don't do that Pentecostal, charismatic, holy roller stuff here. That's emotionalism. (laughs) What do you do with this scripture? Don't let anybody ever tell you that it's wrong to raise your hands in, in church. It's biblical to respond in a reverent way. It shows your openness and your neediness before God. It's a helpful posture just to be reverent before God. Next, notice it says that they bow down to the ground. This was a symbol of surrender. This was a symbol of submission. This was a symbol of humility and standing underneath the word of God. So often we, we, we have it all wrong. Instead of having God's word up here and us bowing down before it, we put God's word down here. And we say, I don't like this part, I don't like that part, I don't like this. You got the whole thing messed up. The word goes up here and we let God's word criticize us so often we're doing it backwards like we're criticizing the word of god so they bow down to the ground and then notice how they agree they say amen amen which in hebrew means very true it's just verbalizing their agreement and here again this is something that many people are not really comfortable doing but i want you to know you don't have to be shy about saying amen in church By saying amen, you are just verbalizing your agreement with God's word. I love you, Dad. (laughs) Let me encourage you. If something strikes you as true in the word of God, go ahead and be bold and just say amen. In fact, let's just try that together on the count of three, right? Just so you can see yourself say it. Ready? One, two, three. Amen. Amen. It's helpful to the speaker. It is encouraging to us. It is also encouraging to one another. It encourages us by sharing that we are one in spirit here, that we are of one mind, that we love the word, and we love the Lord of the word. So um, you, you all know my, my father-in-law, Adam, sits right over there. Oftentimes, you'll hear him saying amen. In, in, Adam's one of my favorite people in the whole world. I should be saying amen to him. It's, it's just all backwards the way it is, but this is our roles, right? He does that not because it's me. He says amen to Pastor Bob's sermons. He says amen to Ed Williams' sermons. Anybody who's preaching the word, if he hears the word, he's going to respond by saying amen. He's done that his whole adult life. And I just think it's such a blessing to God's people. He sets a good example for the rest of us. And so can I just give you a little gentle exhortation here? Can you help him out a little bit? (laughs) He's carrying you every week. I know it takes a little boldness. It's a little like, should I say amen? I don't know, I'll draw attention to myself. Forget that. Just say amen. Affirm the word of God. Now, people get so excited about such silly stuff. I mean, it was so cool. The Texas Rangers won the World Series for the first time ever last week. Did anybody see the kind of celebration that was happening down there in the Dallas Metroplex? I mean, they're fired up. Pandemonium over baseball. We're talking about the God of the universe here. We're talking about God who's revealed himself in his word and revealed himself in the person of his son. We can get, it's totally appropriate for us to respond with some excitement and celebration. Amen? Amen. You're getting better. You're getting better. That's good. So as Ezra's reading from the word, sometimes he stops for a little while. The Levites begin to do some teaching about what was read and and help them apply God's word. So take a look at the next two verses, seven and eight. It says this. The Levites 
instructed the people in the law while the people were standing there. They read from the book of the law of God, making it clear and giving the meaning so that the people understood what was being read. This is so important. They made it clear. They gave the meaning. It means they gave them insight. They gave them the correct interpretation. The principle here is that the word of God needs to be explained and explained properly. This is mostly the preacher's job. But this is why it's important for us to go to a liturgy in a language that we understand. So the, the, the sermon here should explain what the word of God means, and that's really the preacher's responsibility, but it's also the listener's responsibility to make sure you got it. If you're at home watching a show nowadays with the DVRs, if you miss something in the show, you're going to push pause, you're going to rewind it, and you're going to go, what was that thing that they just said? Or you're going to make sure you get it. In the same way, uh, we need to make sure we're understanding what God's word has to say to us. They're making it clear. I mean, what good is it if you hear it, but you can't understand what God is saying? It's not really good for anything. If you can listen, that's fine. It's not going to hurt you. But the blessing is going to come when you understand. Otherwise, you'll be frustrated. So the goal is not just listening for the sake of listening. It's understanding. That's what they're doing here. So that's the third point when it comes to responding to the Word of God. We need to respond to the Word of God with understanding. Can we say that? Respond to the Word of God with understanding. Do you strive to understand what God's Word is saying to you? I heard a funny story about a guy who took his girlfriend to a football game for the first time. She had never paid attention to anything regarding football her whole life. Uh, she goes to this game, and then after the game, he asks his girlfriend, you know, how'd you like the game? She's like, well, it was a little confusing. Uh, I'm not really too sure why everybody was out there on the field killing each other for 25 cents. He goes, what in the world are you talking about? She goes, well, at the beginning of the game, they flipped a coin, and then for the rest of the game, all they kept screaming was, get the quarterback, get the quarterback, get the quarterback. <laughs> Maybe she was one of those Taylor Swift fans who suddenly discovered the Kansas City Chiefs. I don't know. The point is, she was watching the football game, not understanding what was going on. Sometimes that can happen at church. We're listening, but we're not really understanding. And so the people here sought to understand God's word, and we should do the same. The text goes on to say this in verse 9. It says, Then Nehemiah the governor, Ezra the priest and teacher of the law, and the Levites who were instructing the people, said to them all, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people had been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. What's happening here? What's happening is after they listen and after they understand, the people have this strong reaction. And usually if you see somebody grieving or mourning, it's because they lost a loved one or something terrible has happened in their lives. But here they are grieving over their own sin. And the word of God, like a mirror, has shown them how they fall short. And so they're awakened, they're, they're cut to the heart, they're cut to the quick, they become sorrowful, they, they start to, to cry, they start to weep. This feeling of regret washes over them with this deep sense of compunction. This is how true revival begins. It begins with the power of God's word. And we ought to respond to God's word in the same way. And so that's the fourth principle I think we need to learn. We need to respond to the word of God with conviction. Can we say that? Respond to the word of God with conviction. Sometimes, and I'm guilty of this, sometimes we listen to a sermon very self-righteously. 
and we start to think, oh man, I really wish so-and-so was here today to hear the word that's being spoken. Or like spouses got their elbows cocked kind of situation. That is not the way to listen to a sermon. God wants to speak not to your neighbor, not to your spouse, not to your uncle who's not here. God wants to speak to you. God wants to speak to me. In the Old Testament for the Day of Atonement, the people were told to afflict your souls. So have this sense of cultivation of a conviction of, 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 of sin in our hearts with a sense of humility and grief for what breaks the heart of God. That's why Hosea 10:12 says, break up your fallow ground for it's time to seek the Lord. Now just to clarify, conviction is not the same as condemnation. If you're a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, his atonement has covered every sin that you will ever commit. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But the conviction work of the Holy Spirit is still very present when something is not quite right in your lives. The Spirit uh, will make us uncomfortable in that way. And that is a blessing. I, I know the word repent, like billboards and stuff like that, it seems so abrasive. Repentance is a gift. Repentance is such a gift from God to reorient my thinking. I'm off. It's not working. And so repentance is so beautiful for God to give that to me and to give that to you as his people. We need to repent. So this is what's happening. They're convicted, and then they humble themselves, and then the leadership says to stop the mourning. Now, why would the leaders say that? I mean, why, would, why were they telling the people to stop the grieving? Wasn't it a good thing that they were mourning over their sins? Yes, absolutely. But there is also a comfort from God that comes in his word as well. This is what Jesus meant when he said, blessed are those who mourn, they will be comforted. So we must remember that the same word of God that brings about God's law and brings about God's justice is the same word of God that speaks to us about God's forgiveness and God's mercy and God's payment for our sin. And so it was grace that taught my heart to fear and grace my fears relieved. And so what this means is after I've responded to God's word with conviction, I can also experience the beauty of the forgiveness of God and the grace that I find in his word as well. Because the same word that shows me my sin provides me my assurance of pardon. God says to his people, I will give you the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. And so the text continues in verses 10 through 12 by, by telling us this is what happened. Nehemiah said, go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks and send some to those who have nothing prepared. This day is holy to our Lord. Do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. The Levites calmed all the people, saying, be still, for this is a holy day. Do not grieve. Then all the people went away to eat and drink and to send portions of food and to celebrate with great joy because they now understood the words that had been made known to them. So after this time of conviction, God's mercy breaks in through the clouds like sunshine after a dark thunderstorm because it's then when his grace and his mercy and forgiveness shines the brightest and it's then that we find something called the joy of the Lord. And Nehemiah says, that joy can give you great strength. Now you might say, how? That's a familiar verse to us, but how exactly does that work? How does the joy of the Lord bring us strength? 
Well, the answer is that the manner in which this kind of joy brings us strength is that after we know we're forgiven for our sins, and after we realize we have been rightly related, related to God again, and we have a right relationship reconciled uh, to God, it is then that we can understand we have something more satisfying than anything else this world can offer us, a relationship with God. That is the joy of the Lord. And that relationship with God is so precious to us, so precious to you, that it gives you such great joy that that joy strengthens you against every form of temptation you could ever face. Jesus said, finding a right relationship with me, like my kingdom, it's kind of like if you find a treasure that's hidden in a field and with joy, you sell everything that you have just to buy the treasure. And when you find it, You are satisfied in God. Your joy is in God and God alone. And now you have strength to overcome temptation because everything else pales in comparison to knowing God. And so that's how the joy of the Lord gives us strength. And the text goes on to say, from here they begin to celebrate what's known as the Feast of Tabernacles, the feast where they would make these temporary shelters and remember the wandering of the wilderness and God's provision for them. And they would remember this time in their history when they had nothing and God was their everything and he was their source of joy. And so that's the point here I think God wants us to learn about our response to him uh, as we look at point number five is that we need to respond to the word of God with joy. Can we say that together? Respond to the word of God with joy. Do you find joy in your relationship with God? in the fact that you've been reconciled with God. You know what my problem is? You know what our problem is? We find our joy in other places. We invest our time and our money in things that promise us joy, but those things don't last. But when I find the joy of the Lord, when you find the joy of a right relationship with God, you have a joy unspeakable that's full of glory. Show me a person who understands the joy of knowing God and treasuring God above all things, a person who understands the preciousness of their relationship with God, and I will show you a strong person indeed. Can you get lost in that joy for a while? Can you get consumed by that joy? Do you take the Lord by the feet and receive your joy from him? You see, friends, that's why the scriptures are so precious, that's why we give them our attention. It's because it's, it's in this word that we come to know our God. That's why we listen to preaching. Not to become a smarter sinner or to become a Bible expert. It's so that we can come to know the Lord our God because inside these divine pages, this is how God wants to communicate to us. Now, on a personal note, I could just testify that this thing When I first started studying this for myself, completely changed my whole life. It will do the same for you. This thing's alive. He wants you, brother and sister, God wants to speak to you. He wants you to hear his voice. And he put his message in a book so that you could know him. You know, there's been some loved ones in our lives that have passed away. And on my phone, I can't bring myself to delete the text message threads from them. I can't bring myself to delete some of the old voicemails. 
even though they're not with me, going back and reading that or listening to their voice one more time is, is almost like having them here. Just like that. God may not physically be present with you right now next to you, but he wants to send a message to you in his word and meet with you. That's why you can't afford to be just a passive listener. Because when you love someone, you, you pay attention to them. So that's what I'm encouraging you to do today, to show your love for God by listening to him as he speaks to you in his word. The application is plain, isn't it? Come to church every week expecting to hear from your God. Come to meet with your creator. Come not to hear from Pastor Dave or Pastor Bob. Come prepared to listen to the voice of God. If you will eagerly desire to hear from him, he will speak to you and you will be blessed beyond belief. And you will stand in a long line of people who were a people of the book. That's what it's all about. Let me invite the worship team to come and lead us in one final song. And as they do, I'll close with this one story. It's a story about St. Augustine. Sometime in the year 386 A.D., Augustine and his friend Olypius were spending some time in Milan. While he was outdoors, Augustine heard the voice of a little child singing a song, the words of which in Latin were, Tola lege, tola lege. Take up and read, take up and read. Augustine thought at first that this song must be related to some kind of children's game, but he couldn't remember ever having heard such a song. And then considering that this song might just be a command from God to him, he decided that perhaps God wanted him to go find a copy of the Bible and read it. And so for the first time ever, this pagan, this carousing man named Augustine opened up the word of God to the very first verse he found, which happened to be in the book of Romans. And he writes this in his autobiography, The Confessions. He says this, I read that one verse, and no further would I read, nor did I need. For instantly, as the sentence ended, by a light, as it were, of security infused into my heart, all the gloom of doubt vanished away. One word from God transformed Augustine's life forever. And the rest was history. Friends, Christianity makes an astounding claim that God can be found by reading the pages of a book called the Bible. Never get over that. Let's pray. Father, forgive us for not reverently listening attentively to your word. Thank you for preserving this text and for being so patient with us. But also we ask that you forgive us for looking for our joy in other places, in other people, even in substances, temporary pleasures. Forgive us for our idolatry of trusting in anything but you. Help us to do what we need to do, to prepare to hear your word. But Lord, most of all, when we read your word, show us he who is the word with a capital W. Show us our Savior. Help us to remember how precious it is to have a relationship with him who's revealed in the scriptures. And help us to remember how we all need to respond to your word and allow it to live out in our lives because we all know the blessing of the Bible comes when we start living it out. 
So we pray that you'd find us faithful for our good, for your glory. For it's in Christ's name that we pray. And everyone said...